Hi, everyone. It's Nico here with a quick note before today's show. The interview you are about to hear with Rodney Smola was recorded on May 20th and is about the events that occurred in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, which, if you recall, involved protests and counter-protests surrounding the removal of Confederate statues located prominently in that city. The events occurred throughout that summer of 2017 and culminated tragically with violence and death during the weekend of August 11th. Now, it's important I mention that this was recorded on May 20th because that is obviously prior to the protests that began last week surrounding policing and race in America. Of course, those two topics are incredibly relevant to the Charlottesville discussion, and had this been recorded after the recent protests began, Dean Smola and I would have certainly connected the dots. Nevertheless, I hope to directly address the issues arising out of the recent protests, including the issues surrounding press freedoms, on an upcoming show. So please stay tuned for that. Now, on to this show. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Hello, and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino. It was three years ago this summer that a fierce dispute over the removal of Confederate monuments in Charlottesville, Virginia, captured the national attention. The events that summer led to racial animosity, heated debate over our nation's history and its founding principles, and threw one historic city into turmoil, ultimately culminating in death and tragedy during the weekend of August 11th, 2017. That August weekend, white nationalists descended upon Charlottesville for a third time in four months to protest the removal of statues of Confederate generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, which were located in Charlottesville parks. It was the white nationalists' right to protest. But how far does that right extend? And who, ultimately, is responsible for the violence that ensued? Our guest today is the author of a new book about the summer of hate in Charlottesville, which explores the events leading up to that deadly August weekend, the cultural currents flowing through America that led to its outcome, and how we should think about free speech protections for protests and, yes, hate speech. The book is titled Confessions of a Free Speech Lawyer, Charlottesville and the Politics of Hate, and the author is Rodney Smola. Mr. Smola is Dean and Professor of Law at the Delaware Law School of Widener University. He's also a First Amendment scholar and an experienced litigator who argued the Seminole Ku Klux Klan cross-burning case Virginia v. Black before the United States Supreme Court, a case that is certainly relevant to what occurred in Charlottesville in 2017, and a case we discussed before on this show with his co-counsel David Baugh. Significantly, Dean Smola was also appointed by then-Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe to advise the governor's task force on public safety and preparedness in response to civil unrest. The task force was formed in the wake of the Charlottesville events. Dean Smola, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you, Nico. Thank you for having me. I'd like to jump right in because I have a lot to cover. Your book was fantastic, and I learned a lot about what happened in that summer of 2017 from your book. Thank you. By way of beginning, I've spoken with many First Amendment attorneys and advocates about the events in Charlottesville, some of whom appeared on this podcast. They include former ACLU folks like Ira Glasser, Nadine Strawson, Norman Siegel, Philippa Strum, Joel Gora. To a person, they assign most of the blame for what happened that weekend in Charlottesville to poor policing. However, you write in the book that you personally find it difficult to assign condemnation or blame against law enforcement in Charlottesville in any pointed sense. Why is that? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think so. Those folks that you mentioned are all my friends. Uh, I, I know a lot of them. Uh, they're terrific people. Nadine Strosen uh, was nice enough to write a little blurb on my book. Um, I guess once I dove into all this, I just thought it was too pat and too simple to just blame the police. Uh, the the currents that were going through the country, the the things that descended on Charlottesville that made it such a perfect storm, the our our, our deep divisions over race and identity, the the the. the Americans struggle to think through our free speech values. All, all of those things, it seemed to me, are important contributors. Uh, President Trump and, and, and some of the uh, negative impulses in our uh, country's uh, culture that he has encouraged, I think, uh, were part of it. So it just felt too pat uh, and too easy to simply blame police. They did make mistakes, and there were lessons to be learned, but I think it's a lot deeper than that. So the lessons to be learned moving forward, when we think about those, and when I think about past conflicts involving hate groups and counter-protesters, I, you, know, you, you can't think about these sorts of events without thinking about the Skokie case in Skokie, Illinois in 1978, in which the ACLU was also involved. I um, am currently making a documentary about the life and career of Ira Glasser, who took over the ACLU as executive director in the fallout right. of the Skokie case in 1978. And in the process of making that documentary, I've reviewed archival footage from all the major networks. Uh, all of them, ABC, CBS, NBC, covered the Skokie case. And one of the things that you noticed in reviewing that archival footage, and Frank Collin and his band of neo-Nazis uh, were regular protesters in the in the park uh, Marquette Park in Chicago, and so right. the police had a lot of experience working with them and the counter protests. But one of the things you notice is just a tremendous police presence, and the police were not afraid to get in between the protesters, in this case Frank Collin, and the counter protesters. And you you didn't quite see that in Charlottesville, at least in the coverage that I've seen. And and right. as you acknowledge. In your book, your book, you draw uh, parallels to a neo-Nazi gathering in Madison Square Garden, I believe it was like 1939, in which you said right. New York City put out something like 7,000 police officers to prevent violence there. Yeah, it was the largest assembly of uh, New York police officers, I think, at any public event ever. I mean, they, they, they surrounded Madison Square Garden, where... You know, it's probably shocking for us to think the, the the garden was filled with American Nazis supporting the Third Reich and Hitler in, 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 at that time period, and that was the response of Mayor LaGuardia to just descend uh, on the garden with with overwhelming force. So, listen, don't don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not saying that it wouldn't have been a lot better to have three times or four times as many police officers as there, as there were in Charlottesville. Obviously, the Charlottesville Police Department couldn't have done that. They, 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 they had everybody there, but you could have had National Guard, state police. You could have had a, a much larger presence, and we'd certainly have learned that lesson. So there was a, there was a similar supremacist rally following the Charlottesville tragedies in Boston, and the city of Boston pulled out the stops, both in terms of physical barriers and, and police presence. 
and avoided violence. And so, yes, that that is probably the smart move if you know that you're going to have warring groups descending in, in in a tight you know in tight proximity. Um, that's probably the smart move going forward. So I guess what I was saying is, uh, to me, the confrontations were much more revealing about our country, our, our, our views of free speech, our struggles with race, um, than just to say, oh, it was, a, it was an error, the cops blew it. And the cops, you know, they're in a, between a rock and a hard place. As you talk about the previous uh, white nationalist rallies in Charlottesville, the police seem to have been more proactive in some of those earlier rallies, but they took criticism for that. Uh, you right. note that the police were essentially protecting the white supremacists from counter-protests in the sense that their backs were to right. the white nationalists and they were facing the counter-protesters. Well, one, of the, one of the things I've suggested, obviously I'm not a law enforcement expert, but one of the things I've suggested is in the future, you know, if you're, if you're, if, if the, if the bad guys, if the racial supremacists the, or the Klan guys are going to be running a gauntlet and you've got you've to create a space that gets them to the park they're supposed to be at, uh, or, or they, have a, they have a parade planned and you know there are going to be people screaming and jeering and yelling at them from the, from the sidewalks, then you should have your officers deployed so every other one is facing inside and outside. So half the police are facing the marchers and half the police are facing the, the counter-protesters. That just sends the symbolic you know, uh, signal, we're protecting each of you against each of you. We're keeping you apart. And we don't just have our, our backs facing the Nazis and our fronts and our weapons facing the counter-protesters. Because that creates the optic that the cops are there to protect the racists. Yeah, that I haven't heard that before, that suggestion, but it seems very like a good idea. It's a little maybe it's silly in, 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 the, in the mechanics, but it, 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 you know the, the, deeper, the deeper free speech question is that you know there was a time in our history in which if somebody was an agitator and causing unrest and crowds were getting restless, our First Amendment law said you can remove the agitator. And then the famous case is Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire, where Walter Chaplinsky was this over-the-top Jehovah's Witness street preacher that was criticizing all sorts of other religious traditions and, and, and making people, you know, fidgety and starting to, it's starting to look like they're going to be trouble. And a police officer seemingly doing the right thing, tried to get him to chill, just kind of move on down. Why don't you, you know, come back another day? Walter Chaplinsky didn't want to do it. He cussed at the officer and he got arrested and he took his case to the Supreme Court of the United States and the Supreme Court sided with the police and against Chaplinsky. So that, that's a case that's one of the most famous free speech cases in American history. I think it's now largely overruled. But if you think about it, what, what, what went down there is we allowed the angry crowd to silence the speaker who himself was not violating any law. And our law has since flipped around. It's flipped to the opposite side. We now respect this notion called the heckler's veto. We don't want the angry crowd to be able to shout down the unpopular speaker. And that's a, I think that's the right rule. But that rule, as you say, really makes it tough on the police because they're now in the uncomfortable, unseemly position of looking like they're siding 
with the speaker that may not only be unpopular, but may be pretty much by most people universally condemned like the like the white supremacists. And they have the job to keep them separate, but they also have the job to not keep them too separated. Right. So a fire yeah. fire uh, co-founder Harvey Silverglate, criminal defense attorney up in Boston, after that Boston rally, criticized the efforts of the police. And he, he I think he cited uh, or quoted who was a Tacitus or someone. He said they make a desert and call it peace. The police in Boston <laughs> separated the protesters so much that there was no ability for either side to engage it with each other. Right. So, so you got to be careful about yeah, that too. Yeah, you have to be careful about that. And and if you really if you if we really want to think this through, you know, theoretically, you want each side to be able to send their message to the other. And so that's the idea that there's they 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 have to be separate, but they have to be able to engage. Now, if we're going to be realists. The odds that they're that the marketplace of ideas is really going to matter a hoot in that situation is really low. Yeah, because I just can't see I just can't see the people from Antifa converting the clan and I can't see the clan converting the people from Antifa. There's no real genuine interest in doing anything other than screaming at each other. But we do have this notion that there that you should be able to hear the other side's jeering and screaming. So, you know, I, I agree with with the comment that they have to be uh, not so separate that 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 the whole idea of the protest and the counter protest is lost. But I also think realistically, the notion that there's going to be any serious discussion is is you know ridiculous. So you write that if I'm reticent in assigning any deep moral culpability to Charlottesville and UVA authorities, I have no reticence in assigning full responsibility for all the death and destruction in Charlottesville to Richard Spencer, Jason Kessler, and their many radical supremacist disciples. These are the organizers, of course, of the Charlottesville rally. You also note that their message was fraught with death. It's a paraphrase. But is this analysis unique to the facts of the Charlottesville case and the specific actions of its organizers? Or in your opinion, to the extent there is ever a hateful message as part of a protest or rally that turns violent, do the hate mongers maintain the bulk of the moral comp- culpability? I'm thinking here. That's a great question. I think it's I think it's some of both. So you know, right now there is ongoing litigation in Charlottesville in a civil case brought by the uh, a number of people who were injured in the in the violence against the planners of the Unite the Right rally. A number of the people that you've mentioned by name and, and others. And the hypothesis of that civil suit, which is going forward right now in federal court in Charlottesville, is that this was a conspiracy to trigger violence, that that these folks knew there would be violent confrontations and they wanted that. And that was part of their point. That was part of their tactic. And we'll see if the evidence supports the allegations. But I wouldn't be surprised if the evidence does support the allegation. So, and, and, and at least the record that I had, what I was able to, to, to put together in, in researching the book, <clears throat> lends plausibility to the notion that is what they had in mind. And so if, if proven, I, there is moral culpability there. Now you ask me another question, which is, even if I am totally respectful of free speech, is there an automatic condemnation uh, in which more moral culpability resides with the 
people who have messages of, of hatred and genocide and racial superiority? And my answer to that is yes. And, and so although, the, although the, our free speech values require government to remain neutral, they don't require me, Rod Smola, to be neutral. And I can say, as between the, the, the counter-protesters who are, who are, their message is inclusion and human dignity, and the supremacists who have a message that comes from Nazi ideology and, and, and racism and anti-Semitism, I have no problem saying there are good guys and bad guys. And when they come together and somebody gets hurt, there's an automatic residue of blame that, in my view, I'm willing to assign to the bad guys. So uh, to draw more parallels with Skokie, because I'm making this documentary and reviewing so much footage related to the case, Mayor Kahan, uh, or Kahani, I forget how you pronounce his last name, Rabbi Kahani of the Jewish Defense League, uh, said in one of the clips that we use in the documentary, the Nazis will not march in Skokie. Should the Nazis appear, we will break their heads. There will be violence in the streets. And then you have Frank Collin on an ABC newscast saying, I can promise this. They come hell or high water, Supreme Court or no Supreme Court, arrest or no arrest, violence or no violence, Rabbi Kahani or no Rabbi Kahani, we are going to Skokie by God this year. We don't care how much violence they're going to bring on their heads. We'll give it back to them three times as much. And then I, I'm interviewing David Goldberger, who was the lead attorney in that case. And he, I asked him, well, you know, of course, the march in Skokie never happened. I said, had the march had happened, do you think there would have been violence? And he said, yes, I think there would have been bloodshed. So you have here both sides, the protesters and the counter-protesters, signaling violence. Had the march had happened like it did in Charlottesville, how would we assign blame there? And it's just, it's really hard to think about a situation in which you don't depend almost wholly on the police or you force, you, right. you see, you see this, these, these quotes or hear these quotes and you, you forestall the rally altogether. You say the facts of this case, what they've been talking about, this is a conspiracy to commit violence. We cannot let this move forward. So I, I'm, I'm having a hard time, you know, because we think of Skokie as a seminal free speech case that is so indicative of our First Amendment values here in the United States. But at the same time, you have some of the leaders of the protesters and counter-protesters saying some of the same things that you cite in your book as the protesters and counter-protesters saying leading up to the rallies in Charlottesville as well, that could be could be, make them responsible for the conspiracy charges or could find them guilty yeah. of the conspiracy so charges. Right. So I, I, I don't... Um, I'm a litigator, and like a lot of litigators, I forget what I've written three days after <laughs> the case is over. All you, right? and, you and me both. I mean, I'm not even a litigator, and I forget what I wrote yeah. yesterday. And so I, I'm, I, I was just listening to some passages which, which you quoted me in, in my book, and I said, geez, did I write that? That's not so bad. I like the way I said that. <laughs> I've forgotten I'd said it. But, but look, I, my memory is that in Charlottesville, there were not many counter protesters who were planning violence. The, the, there, were, there were two different groups. There, were, there was a, a group of people from within Virginia and outside of Virginia who, who, who took the sort of classic ignore them, let's have our own counter rallies, let's not give them the dignity of shouting them down. Um, you know, let's, let's, uh, ignoring them is the best thing we can do. And there were, there were clergy within Charlottesville and government leaders and UVA officials that took that view. And then there was the confrontation view and the confrontation view, probably in terms of numbers and intensity 
kind of won out. I think there were more people, you know, who were, who were of the view that they had, that the supremacists have to be confronted. Um, so people in the Black Lives Matter leadership and, and Antifa and, and, and other groups like that, and many of the Charlottesville clergy uh, took the side of confrontation, but it wasn't phrased and planned as violent confrontation. It was, it was, it was not, we're going to bust their heads sort of thing, which, which I hear the rabbi saying in, in Skokie. And so, um, so th- there may be a little difference there. Now, if you ask me, were there people who were on the counter-protest side in Charlottesville who came wanting to punch somebody in the nose, wanting to you know nail somebody with a brick or a sign or something? Probably there probably were, and, and but I don't think that was the the driving ethos there. So one of my other concerns about uh, the the civil cases going through um, in the wake of Charlottesville is last year the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held that. Black Lives Matter activist DeRay McKesson would potentially be held liable for the actions of a protester who allegedly threw a rock at a police officer during a protest in Baton Rouge that McKesson helped organize. Right. Now, this had many First Amendment activists, including myself, very concerned because it seemed to run contrary to that 1982 case, NAACP v. Claiborne Hardware, which you discuss in your book extensively. Right. And that case held that civil liability may not be imposed merely because an individual belonged to a group some members of which committed acts of violence. So how do you think about that case in yeah. light of what's happening in Charlottesville and how, how do you see them as a distinguishable? Yes, I read the Fifth Circuit case and I did think it was probably wrong. Uh, I don't think the proof was there. But, and, and it seemed to be almost a kind of strict liability. You planned the rally and the violence yep. ensued. And, and that struck me as inconsistent with Claiborne and a whole host of First Amendment cases that, that, that we could run through. In, in the Charlottesville case, the accusations are far more pointed and detailed, that there was behind-the-scenes logistical planning, anticipating violence, or using code for, for um, conspiring to engage in violence and, 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 uh, or, or provoke it. And so that I think is the is the is the distinction, as is often the case in First Amendment litigation. You know, evidence matters and facts matter. It, it, there's not a single area of First Amendment law where that's not true. You know, you have to prove actual malice in a defamation case. You got to prove, you know, uh, that speech was directed to the incitement of imminent lawless action and likely to produce it in a in an incitement case. You got to prove a true threat in in like the Black, Virginia B. Black case that I did. So. Facts matter. I'm saying that I read Judge Moon's opinion. He's the federal district judge in Charlottesville that that allowed the suit to move forward. He assembled an impressive compendium of factual material in that opinion that I think was enough to cross the line. And uh, and so I think that's 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 the nuance I draw between the two situations. Yeah, that uh, these First Amendment cases really depend on the facts and an intense analysis of the facts and and kind of taking that fact-based analysis thread and looking a little bit further back, as many of our listeners know, leading up to the Unite the Right rally, the Charlottesville City Administration sought to move the rally away from its originally scheduled location near the Robert E. Lee statue to a different sort of more remote location. Now, the Virginia ACLU and the Rutherford Institute intervened and rep- represented the rally organizers, arguing that to move the rally would violate 
the organizer's First Amendment rights. And as we were just talking about, when a judge is analyzing these sorts of efforts, they really take a fact-based analysis to see whether the there's actually sort of a clear danger that violence is imminent. The ACLU, Rutherford Institute, the rally organizers prevailed, and the rally location was not moved. Now, you were also asked to represent the organizers, but declined. Now, if I'm recalling the book correctly, I don't know that you actually, or you may have, and i just not remembering it correctly, said what you thought of the judge's opinion in that case. Do you think right. that the city had the right to move the rally at the time? And if so, does how do you how does the post hoc thinking about it go? Right. So um, uh, Judge Conrad's decision in that case was largely grounded in uh, in evidence that there were people making the decision in Charlottesville who were doing it out of hostility to the racial supremacists' message. So it was, it was a decision tainted with a censorship motive. And, and I don't remember all the details, but things like um, minutes from a city council meeting or an email message or, or something like that. And so because it didn't appear to be a, a neutral decision grounded in public uh, safety concerns, but a decision basically to kick the supremacists out to the state park on, on the outskirts of Charlottesville while allowing the counter protesters to continue in their venues in the, in the downtown area of Charlottesville near UVA, it, it seemed like it was tainted with viewpoint discrimination. And that was the basis of the judge's ruling. And I think it was sound. I think that I think the judge was right. I'm sure he feels remorse in a way because of the violence that ensued. I, I, I doubt that he feel I, I, I'm guessing that uh, that he feels he made the right decision on the First Amendment merits, as, as I think he did. But you can't help but feel, you know, horrible when when violence then ensues. If there hadn't been that taint, and this is a, sorry for my rambling answer. No, this is this is important. Yeah. If there hadn't been evidence of viewpoint discrimination, and instead it appeared that the decision makers just thought that the downtown area was just too compressed, I, I've I've spent a lot of time in Charlottesville. You know, the, these squares are not large. The, the the streets are narrow. It's a it's a it's a it's a town that's difficult to get around in. Even in normal times, there's always traffic snarls and and things like that. And and you suddenly think you might have ten thousand people there, and they're opposed to each other. And and the city said, "Listen, you can all come, but let's go where there's more grass, and we can put up bigger barriers, and so on." Then, as a as a that would have been a tempting solution. Now, there's one First Amendment problem with that solution, and the that statue. is that the marchers want to be in front of the statutes. That's their whole point. They want to save the statutes. Maybe you could have had some sort of deal where you know 200 each uh, around the statutes, and the other 5,000 have to go out to the park. Um, so it's it's not inconceivable that something like that could have been pulled off that would have been permissible under the First Amendment. Um, but I think that given the cards that Judge Conrad had in front of him, and you have to remember that that hearing took place just a few days before the scheduled rally. Um, I think he I think he made the right decision. Now, 
much we're talking about all the controversial aspects of Charlottesville today. Much was made of the presence of weapons in Charlottesville that yeah. weekend. You argue in the book that the city had and has the legal authority to restrict the presence of weapons in sensitive locations, including at protests and rallies, consistent with the Supreme Court precedent, which said that the government can can restrict uh, the uh, the bearing of right. weapons in sensitive locations. But historically, sometimes the presence of weapons at protests serve symbolic expressive purposes. Right. And right. were used as defensive deterrents. I'm thinking here about the Deacons for Defense and Justice defending civil rights marchers in the Deep South in the 60s or the Black Panthers. So how do you think about those competing concerns? Yeah. So this was this was one of the big things that the task force that Governor Terry McAuliffe uh, appointed later struggled with. And I took a pretty strong position in advising that task force. And I think a lot of people probably disagree with me. You might, you might, you know, but I said that in, in my view, the Second Amendment uh, does permit the government to uh, de-weaponize large rallies. I mean, w w none of us expect to be able to carry a gun into um, an NFL football game or, or, you know, Madison Square Garden or, you know, a con many concerts and things like that. We're used to having to check weapons at the door for, for certain sorts of things. And I said, even in a public forum in which by tradition, you have a, whatever second amendment rights you have to, to have your weapon in, in, um, in, uh, on you and carry and carry weapons that, that when the forum, when, when, the, when the park or the streets are turned into a rally, it becomes, it becomes like going into a stadium. And, and for public safety reasons, you can make everybody disarm. Now, we have no idea whether what I just said is right or wrong under <laughs> the Second Amendment. The Supreme Court has, has not taken many cases since its, its original Heller decision, but it could well be right. And I said, I thought, I thought it made perfect sense as a matter of second, second amendment doctrine to say that now, now there's a nuance that you've, that, there are a couple of nuances that your question raises. Um, one, by the way, it actually was part of the oral argument that I had when I argued in the U S Supreme court, Virginia versus black. It was a, it was a um, colloquy, if that can ever really be true, between me and Justice Scalia. <laughs> By that, I mean he had his point of view, and he was he was he was, he was coming down hard on. Well, me. he got you, is what he said, right? <laughs> well, you know, Justice Thomas was the one who said he oh, got. Oh, is that me. Thomas? Uh, I'm watching the yeah, documentary yeah. about Justice Thomas right now. It's pretty good. Justice Thomas, that was the that was the case in which he spoke for the first time in seven years, and. And surprised us all by what he said, and and dramatically, I think, Im impacted the atmosphere in the courtroom. And and he got Justice Scalia to go with him. They were the only two justices that went completely against me in that case, where I represented the Klan and represented, you know, the rights of crossburners. But but the the particular dialogue involved um, uh, the use of a weapon that was unloaded, that was Justice Scalia's hypothetical. And could that be a threat? And I said, yeah, it could be a threat because the person threatened doesn't know that it's unloaded. And I said, that's different from a cross. You know that the cross itself is not going to hurt you. It's, 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 it, it's the, it may mean in a particular case, we're coming after you, but it's, but it's different in kind than a gun loaded or unloaded. 
But to go back to the more interesting question, I do believe you might have a First Amendment right to bring an unloaded weapon to a rally if, if the rally is about weapons. I mean, I think you might want to be able to have an unloaded gun because you want to make a point about the Second Amendment, something like that. But, I, but I'm of the view that uh, Second Amendment doctrine is sufficiently flexible and I know this is a First Amendment show, but there was only one number off. You know, <laughs> no, there's intersections here. I mean, you're yeah, we're yeah. talking about symbolic speech. Is, uh, is, it's sufficiently flexible to say when we have large rallies and we and and may, maybe you'd add and we anticipate the possibility of violence, we're not going to allow loaded weapons. Now you can get all kinds of cute problems, like what's a weapon, and you know. You also have obvious. you also have state constitutions to contend with, like I know Pennsylvania. Well, and, and and by the way, the the advice that I gave would run into big problems in Virginia because Virginia does have a panoply of laws that uh, give a lot of gun rights and also that largely disable local governments from making some of these measures. So my testimony was based on the U.S. Constitution. There were other issues that Virginia had to face involving its, its panoply of laws. But, but again, I could be right, I could be wrong, obviously, but I'm, I'm of the view that, that there's not a Second Amendment right to attend um, large rallies that have been permitted, even if they're in public parks and, 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 and on public plazas with a weapon. Yeah, my... And thinking about this and thinking about how things might have gone differently in Charlottesville if weapons were prohibited, I, I don't know that things would have been all that much different. Because as you recount right. in your book, the events that occurred that weekend occurred all throughout the city and not just within the permitted r- rally location. Sure. I, I suspect that like not much of what occurred that weekend actually occurred within the permitted rally location. So right. Right. even if you prohibited the, rail, the the weapons within the rally location, you would still have weapons elsewhere, including at the intersection right. where Heather Heyer was murdered, albeit she was murdered using a car. So I, I it was, it was the car was the weapon. Yeah. So I don't mean to say that that banning weapons would have necessarily changed much in Charlottesville. I, 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 I but but what the what Virginia officials wanted to know and a lot of people around the country wanted to know is but but can we ban weapons, at least in those situations where we think it could be it could be safer if we don't allow them. And my view is, is yes. So a good portion of your book provides the background to the competing theories of the First Amendment that have existed throughout American history. There's the order and morality theory that predominated through most of America's history. And then there's the marketplace theory, which you've alluded to already, which began its ascendancy, well, early in the 20th century, but really legally began its ascendancy in the 1960s. Now, you argue in your book that the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville could have never happened if the order and morality theory of free speech continued to reign. Why is that? Yeah, so um, so these are my own kind of nicknames. Uh, there may be other people that have used them before. I, I when I teach um, this to law students or, or talk about it with anybody, think it's a a nice way to organize our thinking about free speech law and to, and to really kind of talk about how the American tradition is unique in the world, because most of the world still follows the order and morality theory. Um, and, and so the, the proof that, that um, if you adopted the order and morality theory, which by the way, the phrase comes from the Chaplinsky case, which I talked about a little bit earlier in our, in our interview here, if you want the proof that that theory would allow you to 
completely ban rallies like the Charlottesville uh, Unite the Right rally. The case is um, Boharnay versus Illinois, which is from my hometown, Chicago. I'm from and, Chicago as well. Well, suburb and, Elmhurst. And, so I, I thought you might be, and and you know, I, I make a little bit. By the way, this is a, this is a little bit of a segue, and maybe maybe I don't mean to trivialize things, but you know, in the Blues Brothers, one of the great Chicago movies of all time, there's the scene where the Blues Brothers, you know, um, go after the Illinois Nazis. What's going on? Ah, uh, those bums won their court case, so they're marching today. What bums? The fucking Nazi party. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. John Belushi says, "I hate Illinois Nazis," and they and they go after them, and and they may, and the Nazis come off in the Blues Brothers as silly, impotent, almost a joke, um, a little bit like David Duke comes off in um, Spike Lee's movie The Black Klansman as as kind of ridiculous, um, and 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 one just as a cultural thing, I, I I've I've I note how. Look how, how they were marginalized and thought of as ridiculous at that time and how they're not marginalized now. I mean, they're a main, they're, their numbers may be, mar, may be marginal, but they, there's a sense of the cultural presence of the of supremacists like Richard Spencer and so on that's come a long way. They've made progress since those guys. I but, think they've kind of waned since Charlottesville, but yeah. Yeah, I, 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 here's the diversion. The, the case I was talking about is Boharnay versus Illinois, which is a 1952 decision. And it followed the Chaplinsky theory. And the, the, the people in Boharnay were part of a group called the White Circle League. They were racists in Chicago and they were passing out leaflets that were um, viciously racist uh, because they were opposed to what appeared to them to be the incipient movement of the Democratic Party toward uh, civil rights. Uh, they thought that Harry Truman and others were moving towards uh, respecting civil rights, and they wanted to stop that. And they passed out these vicious, racist leaflets throughout Chicago. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, and uh, Justice Felix Frankfurter wrote an opinion that alluded to Hitler and the Third Reich and said, Illinois does not have to allow this kind of speech. And it, 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 it eats at the fabric of society. It, it tends to cause um, racial strife. Uh, it, we, we see where it led it, it, to in Europe. And we know there have been racial tensions in Illinois. And you can just ban this speech, make it a crime to say these things. So that, to me, that case was the high point of the order and morality theory in 1952. And it also established the group defamation theory, which I know is- Exactly, which yeah. is a group defamation is a classic kind of version of the order and morality theory. And it expresses the view that it's wrong to, to say wicked things about Jews or blacks. And, and of course, it, it is wrong. It's morally wrong. It's reprehensible. And so that was our law as late as 1952. And then, as you've already mentioned, everything changed in the 60s. Um, and it, we began to see this parade of, of U.S. Supreme Court opinions stretching out until, you know, this right now that reject that view. And so I think uh, had, had that not happened, had we not migrated away from the order and morality theory, the city could have just said, hey, guess what, guys? We don't allow this kind of talk in Charlottesville. You're banned. You, you have no right to come into our streets and, and make these points, which is the law 
today in Europe. I mean, you, it, it's, it's the law in most places in the world. At the end of your book, you kind of explain why you reject the order and morality theory of the First Amendment. And uh, it, it, I'm, again, I'm making this documentary, so a lot of what you say in your book has me reflecting on the documentary. And there's this scene in the documentary on the Phil Donahue show, a very popular show um, uh-huh, through sure. the latter half of the 20th century. And there was an episode that Phil Donahue did, I believe in the late 80s or early 90s, uh, about whether the government can ban the Ku Klux Klan from appearing on cable television. And ah. on that segment appeared a, a FBI informant who embedded himself within the KKK. Also appear, appeared was this Mr. Stoner gentleman who was a leader of a Ku Klux Klan group. Also appearing was Hosea Williams, who you discuss in your book, a civil rights leader, a deputy of Martin Luther King, and the man who led the march through Forsyth County that resulted in uh, yeah. in people throwing rocks at, right. at at civil rights leaders and one of the big heckler's vetoes case, if not the biggest heckler's veto case in American history, but also appearing was Ira Glasser. Now, huh. Ira, Ira was uh, Ira Glasser, the former executive director of the ACLU. Right. And, uh, you know, Ira just suspected that when he appeared on that show that Hosea Williams, this civil rights icon, would be against him, that Hosea uh-huh. Williams would take the side that the the government can ban the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, uh-huh. he would have every justification for doing so. He had rocks thrown at him by the right, Ku Klux right. Klan when he tried to march in Georgia, in Forsyth County. Right. But he took Ira's side in that uh, and surprised Ira. But there was a very revealing question from a member of the audience during that segment. Uh, the audience member, and I'm going to quote the audience member. She said, everybody's talking about the First Amendment, and we have a preamble to our Constitution that is supposed to promote domestic tranquility. It seems so clear of what would be right and what would be wrong. This is promoting yeah. hatred. This is not promoting domestic tranquility. And then the problem with the order and morality theory of the First Amendment made itself crystal clear when the Ku Klux Klan leader, Mr. Stoner, intervened in her question and said, excuse me, but I'm I'm the leading advocate of peace and tranquility in the country. I've declared a program where we'll have only a white Christian <laughs> America and then we'll have peace and tranquility and no more yeah. lawlessness. Yeah. Peace and tranquility is in the eyes of the the beholder. And, yeah. you know, so while your peace and tranquility theory might eradicate the hate groups in Charlottesville, Virginia or Chicago, Illinois, what are they going to do in Forsyth County or in Montgomery, right. Alabama in the, in the 50s or in Selma? Right. And then right. you didn't have this in your book. I was waiting for you to quote it. But I know books go to print long before uh, they're actually released. Susan Bro, the mother of Heather Heyer. Yeah during the October Open Future Festival hosted by The Economist, was asked point blank by her interviewer, do you believe that those protesters who were there in Charlottesville that day had the right or should again have the right to express their views? And she responded, I do. I mean, again, someone who had every right to say no because her daughter was murdered by one of them. She then goes on to give a very moving argument for why free speech must be defended and the order and morality theory must be uh, rejected. She said, my big concern with losing free speech is who makes the decision what speech is allowable and what speech is not. And once you set it up so that there's always one group deciding, that group can change at any given moment. So right. that's the concern and, and, with order and, and, morality. Yeah, and, and I think that's exactly where I came out. Um, I, I am suspicious that the marketplace works very often, we know the opposite is true. We know that often the hateful messages seem to seem to prevail. I mean, they they obviously did with the hysteria that overtook Germany. 
Um, they, they do all the time. And so the idea that somehow truth will emerge because of this back and forth of ideas, I, 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 it sounds nice, but I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I think the argument is the one you've made, the legitimacy argument. That, and 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 here here's where I think um, I often struggle with my own children. I, I have a daughter who was an uh, activist at Yale. Her name is Corey, and she was in the midst of a lot of these debates at Yale. That I went to Yale too. I went to Yale as a football player. She went as someone who actually was smart enough to get in. On her own. <laughs> but 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 you know. Her view, it's a lot like the, 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 the woman who asked the question on the Phil Donahue show. Her view is, well, come on. There's a difference between the free speech rights of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement because they were on the side of right. They were on the side of righteousness. They were on the side of equality. They were on the side of dignity. Um, we can make distinctions between good, good ideas and bad ideas, between good people and bad people. And the racists are bad, and we all know it. And it's, 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 it's wrong to say the First Amendment doesn't allow society to make those judgments. I think that's a powerful argument. And, and I, it's one in the end I don't embrace because of the legitimacy problem, the who's going to decide problem. But I don't like to trivialize it because I think it, it has a lot of resonance and a lot of power. And, and, and it has a pull on us. And that's why I, I know we're, we're coming to an end of the, of the show pretty quickly. But one of the things I do point out is that even though the marketplace idea has become the dominant view in, in American law, the order of moralities theory is still the theory we follow in large pockets of our society so we, 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 we use the order of morality theory in the workplace. If you're a racist in the workplace, you can lose your job. And in fact, your employer can be in trouble if they don't fire you. If you're, we, we use the order of morality theory to a large degree in universities. Even though people have a right to scream at each other on the, on the college green, they have to treat each other with a reasonable amount of dignity you know, in other settings like, like classrooms and athletic teams and things like that. Um, we use the, as lawyers, we use the order and morality theory. I can't, I can't mouth off to a judge, um, and not expect to be thrown in court, you know, thrown in jail for contempt of court. So both theories are part of our society, but we've, but we let the marketplace reign in the, in the open spaces. Yeah. I think, I, I think within fire and I think with a lot of first amendment advocates, the mark, we just don't see the marketplace justification as as compelling as it maybe was in the 20th century. Here at FIRE, and our president, Greg Lukianoff, has this other theory called the lab in the looking glass. He says, you know, the marketplace theory, yeah, truth might win out, but it's usually in the long term, and sometimes it loses out in the short term. But the more important value is that allowing for free speech allows us to see the world as it is, which is important not right. just when people believe hateful things, but especially when they believe hateful things. I mean, censoring someone is like breaking a thermometer. You know, you might not know what the temperature is anymore, but the temperature still remains and it still creates right. public policy problems that must be addressed in a more significant way than just finding them or, or throwing them in jail. Right. I think the most and compelling the most compelling thing that you cite in your book and the, the, the strongest challenge to the marketplace theory is that, you know, are we really going to change our minds about the value of inclusion in our society? You quote a UVA professor 
who talks right. about. And I think, I hope not, but there's more to there's more to it whether the truth is going to win out or lose. I mean, there's also all the John Stuart Mill arguments that you know if you if you foreclose an argument, you begin to hold that truth as a dead dogma, not a living belief that you just right. don't know how to defend it anymore. I don't really know how to you know I I don't have to go out and defend gravity every day. I don't have to go out and defend the fact that the Earth is round every day. So I probably am not going to make the most compelling argument to a flat earther. So and right and and you know one uh, another thing I guess it's a cousin of what you've just said is um, the the idea that I that really you know you see it first in American um, uh, legal writing with Justice Brandeis's opinion in Whitney versus California I, I nickname it the, the the kudzu theory or or maybe the plant's called kudzu I just w- one of our daughters that just graduated from college just did a her whole English major report on that on that plant. But kudzu is this plant. You see it particularly in the South, where it just takes over an area. And if you if you hack at it and and cut it back, uh, if you know in your yard, it comes back ten times stronger. But it's the idea that you actually make evil speech stronger by censoring it because you drive it underground, you make it a martyr. Um, people rally to it. You 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 generate more suspicion against government, and you haven't made anything any better. You've you've made things more dangerous, and that was one of Brandeis's central theories in that case. And and I do find that to be absolutely convincing. I do think if you just ban the speech of the racists, you're going to have more racists. So I realize we're coming up on 45 minutes here. Do you have time for two more quick questions? Sure, absolutely. So I'm in quarantine. I got time. I got all the time in the world. I know it's like it's like Groundhog <laughs> right. Day over here. This is yeah. like the most exciting part of my day. It would be regardless yeah. of whether we were in quarantine, but uh, you know what I mean. So, in 2018, we at Fire surveyed 2,400 undergraduate students about free speech and the events in Charlottesville. We found that 67 percent of students remember reading or hearing news reports about the protests. What's more, 35 percent of students said the event changed how they think about free speech and expression on campus. What do you see as the short-term and long-term implications for the First Amendment of the events that occurred in Charlottesville? Well, I, I guess what I'd say is that's, that 35% should buy my book. <laughs> well, 15% of them actually, because we, we uh, allowed for open-ended questions and then we did sort of like an aggregate analysis of those. We found that 15% of that 35% actually made their uh, beliefs in free speech stronger as a result. Uh-huh. But, uh-huh. Uh, you know, the majority I, I think, were more yeah. apprehensive. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I do think that cultural moments like this impact our impact our collective thinking. And and you know, I I have not been in that group that I think fire. I think a fire is part of the group that you know says college students today don't understand free speech. You, you notice in my book, I'm. I don't say that. I say, well, they do, they understand it. They just understand it differently. They 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 don't come from the the marketplace orientation that I do. That doesn't mean they don't they're not sensitive. But I I do think that that event was probably a significant formative event for a lot of that generation, the college age generation in the United States. It looked to a lot of folks that watched that as if. This is where the First Amendment gets you, and it's not a good place for us to be. So I think that's a realistic assessment of where of the impact it had on a lot of people. And you know, I try and I try in, in my book to not write that off as as naive or, or or to not trivialize it, but to deeply engage it and still try to explain why. At the end of the day, I, I think you have to allow that speech 
as hateful as it is to have its venting. So the last question here, defamation. Now, a portion of your book discusses uh, representation of plaintiffs suing Rolling Stone for a story they published and subsequently retracted about an alleged gang rape of a woman at the University of Virginia fraternity. I mean, University of Virginia was at the center of a lot of controversies there in the past couple of years, especially around 2016, 2017. The, The story was shoddily sourced, and it severely harmed the lives of some of those within the fraternity and the administration at the University of Virginia. And if ever there was a claim for defamation, this was probably it. You also represented plaintiffs in a lawsuit against a book publisher that published a book that taught people how to be a hitman or assassin. And in this case, uh, there was someone who who killed, I think it was, what was it, two or three people? Right. Um, three people. Three people and used this book kind of as a tutorial. Right. Now, representing plaintiffs in defamation cases or in cases against publishers is often looked down upon uh, by members of the First Amendment bar. I think some publishers and trade groups even require their lawyers or members to commit to not representing plaintiffs in these kinds of lawsuits. So what are your thoughts generally about this sort of thinking? And have you experienced criticism uh, oh, sure. from your colleagues for doing And I think about Nat Hentoff, because you talk about Nat Hentoff, the famous right. civil libertarian in your book, who who commended you for your representation. Yeah, great, great civil libertarian and great uh, and great jazz critic, uh, great, one of the great jazz but, writers. Um, but he also and, and so, he also was a critic of defamation law generally. Yeah, he was. He was. So um, look, I have taken heat from a lot of my friends uh, in in the First Amendment bar for being a plaintiff's lawyer. You know, I have a, I have a really cordial friendship with Floyd Abrams, who's maybe the most famous First Amendment lawyer ever in American history. Mm-hmm. And he and I have been friends for a long time, and we've been on the same side of cases. We've written briefs together, uh, but we've been adversaries. He's always a defense lawyer in defamation cases, and I've, I've been against him in defamation cases. And I could go down the line of very well-known First Amendment lawyers with whom I have been allied in many, many cases, but against in cases where I take plaintiff's uh, sides of cases. And you're so, not alone. There's also, I interviewed on the show, Martin Garbus, who also represents plaintiffs. And, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And, and not, no, I'm not alone. And, um, and w- when, I, when I took the, the Hitman case, that's the, that's the Rice versus Paladin case, a person who was also a friend, uh, Adam Liptak, who now covers the U.S. Supreme Court for the New York Times, but in an earlier time in his career was an actual lawyer for the New York Times before he became a, a journalist. Uh, he called me a traitor to the First Amendment. Uh, in know, print? And, 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 yeah, in print. And oh, I, wow. I think, you know, I could take it. It's no big deal. But so I'm, I'm, I'm used to that. Here's my simple answer. I believe the rules are right and I play by the rules. So the, in defamation cases, the actual malice standard is an appropriate way to protect free speech, but still create some opportunity for a person who is defamed to protect their reputation if they can meet that high standard. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't when I take to... a defamation case involving a public figure, I, I, I have no illusions. I'm not trying to get the court to abandon the actual malice standard. I'm trying to get the court to play it straight. And if I have the proof of, of recklessness, I think we did, for example, in the Rolling Stone case, uh, I think it was an e- I think that's why the case settled. Uh, if, if, if we have proof of it, we win. If we don't, we lose. And I could pretty much go down the line and, and in all these cases that, that where I've been on the plaintiff's side and say, I'm not attacking the rule, uh, but as applied to these facts, this, this sort of loops back to what you and I were talking about earlier in, 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 in the current litigation going on in Charlottesville. 
if the facts are there to show the, that the standard has been met, whatever it may be in a particular First Amendment case, then it, there's nothing wrong. Um, in fact, it's appropriate because free speech is always in tension with other important values, with equality, with the protection of reputation, with protection of consumers. You know, it's not an absolute. And if you can meet the standard and someone has, has violated and crossed the line, um, I'm, I'm 100% comfortable with being a crusader for the, for the person that was injured. One of the challenges that we have uh, at FIRE in talking about the law is that there is what the law is and there is what you want the law to be. Right. And so uh, you wouldn't then, based on kind of what you said, reading through the lines, you wouldn't then subscribe to uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's idea that we should reexamine New York Times no. versus Sullivan and the actual malice standard. You actually think that the standards that are in place right now are the best at balancing the competing interests. In right. And, and so when, when, when Justice Thomas wrote that, um, he was he was heavily, heavily criticized. And I wrote an op-ed right after Justice Thomas's opinion. And I said, look, I, th I don't think we should abandon New York Times v. Sullivan. He, he makes some valid points, but a lot of the points he makes uh, which I mean, his one of his main points is that the the case is ahistorical. It can't it can't be squared with what the framers of the First Amendment had in mind, and or the or those who adopted the Fourteenth Amendment had in mind. And I, of course, he's right. But you could say that about ninety nine percent of our free speech law, almost all of it's ahistorical. I'm sure the framers wouldn't have wouldn't have expected a lot of the free speech documents we have. But I did. But uh, but let me make an, another point real quickly before we go, and that is. I do think that the way the landmark defamation cases uh, were decided, and I mean the, the cases from New York Times v. Sullivan through the Gertz case, which is the case that said we also use the actual malice standard for public figures. I do think that, that in the decades since those landmark decisions, some courts have drifted in their application of those cases and are providing more free speech protection than those cases contemplated. And, and some of the, I think more people are classified as public figures than should be. I think that um, often things are treated as opinion, maybe too promiscuously. They're really more, they're really facts, but courts are maybe too quick to call them opinion. Um, and, and the proof that you have to have to show actual malice um, is sometimes, I think, more demanding than those cases um, contemplated. These are, squib these are quarrels on the edges. This is inside baseball type quarrel. So I think Justice Thomas may have some, I, I kind of in a way would like the U.S. Supreme Court to take another big defamation case. It's been a long time since they have, and some of these issues are festering and they need some resolution. Um, and, and Justice Alito made the point too recently in a, in, in a, when the Supreme Court denied review in a case called Mann, which involved the fact versus opinion distinction and, and who gets to decide that uh, juries or judges. Um, I, I, I'm guessing there will be a big defamation case that the Supreme Court takes sometime in, in the next year or two or three. And it may kind of go back and, and, and it, I don't think it'll change any of the substantive doctrines, but I think it may fine tune them a bit and, and, and recalibrate them a bit. Maybe in one direction, maybe the other. I don't know. But I think there might be some interest in, in, in doing that. I'm actually surprised they didn't take that man case. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, it seemed like public appetite. army of amici. Yeah. I, I kind of thought they might, but they didn't. Um, 
But I, I hope they take one soon, and I hope I get to argue it. <laughs> is the is the uh, Virginia v. Black case your only case in front of the court? Yeah, it it is. Um, I, and of the twenty or so cases that I've been involved in, in which there were serious cert petitions, it's the, it's not the one I would have thought the Supreme Court would take. But um, it, it is the one that they yeah, because they had the they had the RAV case, which seemed pretty similar to me. Um, you know, it was distinguishable in, in certain significant ways as well, but. Um, it wasn't too far in the before the uh, right ten years only ten years before yeah right. but the, the court sometimes takes free speech cases back to back like yeah uh, whether it, you know flag burning I think there was there was a couple of flag burning cases there right in short order right well I could keep talking to you all day <laughs> there's plenty well, to talk we'll about do it again sometime I'd be I'd be delighted <laughs> yeah Dean Smola I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and and I urge people to check out your book thank you. That was Rodney Smola. He is Dean and Professor of Law at the Delaware Law School of Widener University and the author of the excellent new book, Confessions of a Free Speech Lawyer, Charlottesville and the Politics of Hate. The book is now available and can be found wherever fine books are sold. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thanks again for listening. <laughs>